been a couple weeks about to uh, leave town for the weekend so figured i would record one before i left and a bunch of things on my mind i think we're in sort of a limbo here where a lot of truth is coming out because of partly because of twitter being more free to air certain topics that were being suppressed and then not all of it's coming out or the what's coming out isn't landing the way you would think it might or you hope it might. Um, the Twitter files came out and there was some pretty big stories about the FBI putting its weight on certain points of view and censoring other people in violation of the First Amendment. That's a big story. But they had sort of the medical COVID files and Lee Fang, who I don't put him in the same level as like Greenwald and Taibbi, he was reporting how you know, Pfizer was trying to suppress, I guess he was reporting that, you know, Pfizer didn't want to give poorer countries low cost access to the vaccine. And that came out, but you know, that's kind of like, that's kind of a big, you know, it's sort of like, well, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? What, what did you think happened in the play? It's, it's sort of leaving out the, you know, the blue whale in the room, which is that at least according to some estimates, 500,000 People have died not from COVID since around when the vaccines came out in 2021, 2022. And 500,000 people is a lot of excess deaths. Now, maybe that number could be disputed. I know they were talking about uh, more than 30,000 deaths in 2022 through, I don't know, October, November, just in the UK, which is a fifth of the size of the US and just in nine months instead of two years. So you can quibble with the numbers a little bit, but I think it's not that controversial anymore to acknowledge that there's a significant amount of excess death. And uh, Rudy Gamble on Twitter was saying, well, um, if you can show that the excess death correlates by, you know, state and vaccine uptake and, and county or, you know, or maybe even by country or something where, you know, the countries that have higher uptake have more excess death, that would get his attention. And I think that's fair. I think that's, the kind of thing that's hard to get the data clearly. Um, the ethical skeptic has some data, sort of this weird graph that over time, as uh, it becomes April of 2021, you start seeing a correlation between vaccination rate by county and all-cause non-COVID excess mortality by county. And that starts to correlate. But I'd be really good just to compare, say, Portugal, where I live, which is highly vaccinated versus you know, a country in Africa that was low vaccination rates and compare the excess death think that would be pretty helpful. One thing that I've read, don't know if this is true, is that, you know, not all the vaccines were equal. There were some that were, you know, maybe had a hot dose, bad batches. And there were some that maybe were more of a saline dose, didn't really have much in them. Apparently it was hard to make them uniform, the amount you deliver. I read an interesting piece saying that the window, the therapeutic window for a drug is basically the amount, you know, you have to have enough that it has efficacy uh, but not so much that it has toxicity and good drugs, you know, drugs that are widely used like ivermectin, or you can even say supplements like vitamin C. That's a pretty wide range, you know, where they do something, at least in some conditions. But if you take too much, nothing terrible is going to happen to you unless it's, you know, a ridiculous amount of overdose um, and more dangerous drugs are more sensitive. There's a very narrow range between therapeutic and toxic, and it's very you know, dangerous and it's, and it's sensitive. And so, you know, this, this one article that I read was, was saying that it's, it's not easy to make 
the mRNA shots have a uniform dose. I don't even know if that's true, but I'm just saying there may be some con uh, confounding factors as to which counties got which doses on average or something like that. But I do think the easiest one would be comparing, say, an African country with very low vaccination uptake versus, you know, a European country, the U.S., and looking how the excess deaths are. Of course, you got to trust the countries to report excess deaths accurately. I do think that it's quite a bit easier to find good data on, on excess deaths uh, compared to cause of death, right? I mean, we've already know for a fact now that um, a lot of people who died of other causes were marked as COVID deaths if they tested positive for COVID after getting into a car crash or suicide or whatever. Attributing the cause of death is is a lot sketchier than just the number of deaths, which is just something that's a lot harder to hide statistically. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's harder. So, But anyway, I, I guess my point is that I'm pretty sure that the cause of the excess death, as it is, is, is the is the mRNA shot. It's the one thing that explains the timeline. It's the one thing that so many people took. I mean, it's, it's the obvious, it's the, the lab leak theory, you know, okay, well, there's this huge outbreak of a new disease just meters away for the, from a place where they're doing gain of function research on this very virus types of viruses. Hmm. What do you think happened? I mean, it's just the overwhelmingly likely explanation. Now there could be another explanation, but even if you don't accept that explanation, even if you're more dubious or, you know, you think, I don't know, there could be something else, even if you can't think of it. It's not climate change, I promise you. And I talked about this last time. It's not Qatari assassination. And even if Damar Hamlin's cause was uh, commotio cordis, which I've read some stuff lately that makes it seem like it wasn't. But even if that particular case was, commotio cordis is 12 a year. It's not explaining the excess death. So it's not that. And so what is it? Now, even if you don't agree that the most likely cause overwhelmingly is the mRNA shot, um, this should still be front page headline news. We should have the New York Times, if it were a serious newspaper still, which obviously it's not, would say, what is causing these excess deaths is an emergency. Apparently we're in the hundreds of thousands in the US and worldwide, probably millions of excess deaths and non-COVID excess deaths. And we need to find the cause. This should be you know, just the paramount aim of any journalist, serious journalist to be like, what the fuck is going on? Let's get to the bottom of this. But, you know, even Greenwald, who I love and Taibu, who I love, uh, they're not touching it. And Ted Bell in the comments of my tweet, he's not, he's not convinced it's definitely because of the jab. I don't think he thinks it's definitely not the jab. I think he's just not sure. Uh, and that's fair, but I think it doesn't really matter actually what you believe the cause is. I happen to believe it's the jab, but I could be wrong but it doesn't really matter what you believe the cause is. As long as you accept that there's mass excess death, that is the blue whale in the room. There's a ton of excess death and nobody seems to care about getting to the bottom of it except some, I mean, not nobody. There are plenty of people looking into this and I saw Tucker Carlson do stuff on this and there, there's, there are people who are looking into it, but you know, we know why the New York Times and Washington Post will never touch this. They were complicit. I mean, if, they, if there's excess death, all their editorials urging mandatory vaccines and punishment for the unvaccinated, those will not hold up well. So you know why they're not doing it, but it's really kind of disappointing, I guess, that Greenwald and Taibi aren't doing it. Are they psyoped also? I know Greenwald took it. I know he gave it to his kids. Does he just, you know, I, I understand like if you'd given it to your kid, you, you definitely don't want this to be true. So maybe your mind is like, nah, that's bullshit. That's ridiculous. You know, maybe in Brazil with Bolsonaro being kind of a nutter and 
and being against the COVID vaccine, you know, maybe, maybe that was part of the environment, but whatever the reason, I feel like there's people in different levels of the, the PSYOP, like, like, okay, you might be woke to like the corruption um, with the FBI influencing Twitter and violating the first amendment. You might be woke to the NSA spying on people. And yet somehow you're naive about large pharmaceutical companies mandate. I mean, Greenwald was against the mandates to give him credit, but he wasn't, it wasn't really a big issue for him. And, you know, he was even palling around with Noam Chomsky, who was like, basically like the, the unvaccinated should be put in camps. He didn't really bat an eye at that. And he was actually defending Chomsky and saying, well, he's old and don't, you shouldn't take someone at their worst moment. And I agree. You shouldn't take someone at your worst moment. Like if, if I were to say something really stupid and I could easily, I would say, sorry, that was a stupid thing to say. But to my knowledge, Chomsky's never walked it back or apologized or said that was totally fucked. I shouldn't have said that. I was just panicked or whatever. I mean, you can definitely uh, not, to, you should not take people at their worst moments, but, but that's only if that worst moment is an isolated thing that you disavow. If you, if you stand by it, you know, by not disavowing it, then, you know, I mean, you got to think that's what he kind of thinks. And, you know, and when he said it, and he's an influential person on the left, Chomsky, you know, that was somebody who people look to and that was really disturbing. And he is old, you know, I don't, doesn't seem like he's losing it. He seems pretty lucid, but, you know, so I don't want to taint Greenwald just be, by being associated with Chomsky, but, you know, he was just sort of lukewarm about that whole thing. And the civil liberties guy, and he's, you know, my opinion, most important journalist in the world, maybe. So I'm just a bit disappointed that, you know, this massive civil, first of all, the massive civil liberties violation of being mandated something at the behest of the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, it's the government mandating it, your employer mandating, but it's Pfizer's profits and you're supposed to inject yourself to go to a restaurant. I mean, this is unprecedented. And, and again, these guys didn't agree with it and, and Greenwald actually expressly disagreed with it, but it just wasn't a big thing for him. And I love the Stone revelations and I'm sitting here with the podcast and Greenwald is in Hong Kong, maybe would have got arrested too or worse. So I can't be saying he's not courageous or something. But I, I can say, like, it's disappointing that he's still sort of drinking the Kool-Aid. He's not really seeing the extent of the evil. Or if he is, you know, again, this is the story. It's not my place to say you need to report this or you need to report that. Report whatever you want. But I just expect the best journalists in the world to be on the biggest stories and to report them ruthlessly and fearlessly. And that's not happening. And, and I don't think it's because Greenwald lacks courage. Quite the contrary. I just think that he's sort of... I think he sort of drank the Kool-Aid. I, I think he, he's sort of still a believer to an extent. And again, if you gave your kids the, the shot, you probably don't, you probably have a big incentive to stay a believer psychologically, right? I mean, not like no one's paying him or anything. I mean, I, I trust him, but psychologically, you don't want to believe that this thing is killing people because if you start put two and two together. Like that's a major source of anxiety for you. So I, I, I get it. You know, I'm probably have blind spots too, where I have interests that are too important to really see beyond it. But again, like, you know, these are the voices that are needed because if people like that start amplifying it, then, you know, I think, I think Greenwald, even though everyone's trying to frame, you know, all the neolibs are trying to frame him as, Oh, he's a right winger. He's a, he's a MAGA guy, which is so ridiculous. He's this like gay liberal dude. Who's, just an old school liberal I and mean, hasn't changed his beliefs at all. But I still think a lot of people know that he's legit. And so this stuff is coming out. The excess deaths are pretty much acknowledged. 
There's been a ton of stuff about the Pfizer trials. It, to me, it just seems like, again, it's like the lab leak. It's like, well, you know, what else is it? You know, I mean, this is the obvious inference. There could be something that someone could show, show me that would disabuse me of this idea. You know, they can meet some high burden of proof, but the burden of proof is on the on some other factor than this new thing that came in and was mass injected in in April of 21 or March of 21 and it's causing massive excess death over the last two years. To me, the burden of proof is overwhelming that there's some other factor that I'm not seeing. People are like, oh, well, there were lockdowns and we got out of lockdown. Yeah, well, the lockdowns in most places weren't that long. And why didn't we see excess deaths like this in December, November of, of 2020? Well, it was delayed cancer, whatever. Well, yeah, there are huge cancer deaths, but you know, they, they just started when the vaccine rolled out. They should have been gradually increasing probably, you know, from the second half of 2020, but it just kind of popped the non-COVID excess deaths when the vaccines got rolled out. It wouldn't fit that pattern if it were just from lockdowns. And then, you know, it's not just cancer though. It's heart attacks, sudden death. Oh, well, maybe people being indoors too much damaged their hearts. But again, the lockdowns were over. They weren't constant for the whole year, maybe in, you know, Australia or somewhere like that, but in most places, many of which have lots of excess death, people were out after a month or two. So it doesn't really explain heart attacks a year and a half, two years later. So again, there may be something that I'm missing and I'm not, I'm not really full-time digging into this and I'm not, you know, I'm a human, I can make errors, but to me, the burden of proof to overcome the obvious inference is very high and it could be overcome, but I haven't seen anyone come close to meeting it. And I think burden of proof is just a really important concept because, you know, in a court of law, if you want to win a civil case, you need to win, show the preponderance of the evidence, basically, you know, better than 50-50 that what you're saying is correct, you'll get money. But to put someone away, take away their liberty, criminal prosecution, it needs to be beyond a reasonable doubt. And you can't really put a number on that, but it's, you know, 95 plus 99. It's like, yeah, meta, there's metaphysical doubt, right? I mean, we don't even know if you know, you're not a brain in a vat. How do you know that kind of shit? Of course you don't know. It's not, it's not possible to know. But in terms of reasonable doubt, like things that basic cause and effect relationships in the world, that as we sort of agree upon them, if there's no reasonable doubt, then, then the jury should convict. And if there is reasonable doubt, an alternative explanation, it may not even be the uh, more likely one, but it's a, you know, plausible one, then you should acquit. And that's, you know, a higher burden of proof. And I think burden of proof is really important because it's at a certain point, the burden of proof shifts, right? It, it goes from, well, you have to show that the vaccine is killing people. You can't just say, oh, that thing's a bioweapon. It's killing people. Some people said that before there was any data or much evidence about that. And then the burden of proof would be on them to show it. But once you have a substantial number of excess deaths across many different countries and locations um, with different COVID policies, but they all had one thing in common and it happened, the excess death, right when this thing was introduced. Um, I think you say that that's probably the thing that caused it. And to meet the burden of proof is pretty high. You're going to have to overcome that and say, well, it seems like it caused this, but here's some powerful counter argument. It's got to be a high bar. I think at this point, it can't be, you know, climate change. Oh, it's climate change. That's not going to work. It's not going to cut it. It can't be long COVID is doing this. That's not going to cut it. Um, a lot of these people dropping dead didn't have COVID. I mean, they probably had COVID at some point, but they didn't have long COVID for sure. They're perfectly healthy. They were playing in sports. They were competing as athletes or working at their job. They were not suffering from long COVID. So again, these explanations are poor and 
you're going to have to come up with an awfully good one to counter the, the obvious inference. It's the blue whale in the room, these excess death and the explanation. We'll see. Um, I would think that more people would be curious. That, that's sort of the thing that's getting me is just the, the incuriosity among journalists, among people. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, people are tweeting about gas stoves and electric stoves, but like, dude, the, there's a blue whale in the room. There's hundreds of thousands of excess deaths, non-COVID in the U.S. right now. Like, what the fuck is going on? I would think one would, I think one would care about that, would be concerned about that. But it's, it's a little too much. I'm thinking I'm going to write something about this. And one of the things that I think is playing into it a little bit, and we don't see young people dropping dead of heart attacks. I talked about this last week. That's just, just unheard of. And now it's just happening all the time. There's this guy I told you, uh, Dr. James Olson, O-L-L or O-L-S-S-E-N, I think. I follow him on Twitter and he just like, tweets out like one anecdotal death after another. And you're just like, what the fuck? 18-year-old hockey player, 17-year-old dancer, 22-year-old volleyball player, 37-year-old guy who looked jacked working at ABC News, 28-year-old producer at ABC News. She looked healthy. Like just tweeting the stuff out and you're just like, this is just bizarre. And I get that we're sort of in a worldwide connected web that we didn't have 20 years ago. So if somebody died at 16 and Iowa and I was in New York, I might not hear about it, but I just think it was incredibly rare for that kind of stuff to happen. And it's, it seems increasingly common now. So one of the reasons though, I think that, I mean, one of the reasons, you know, I explained it last week, the uh, whole phenomenon of just, you know, people choose their beliefs based on social and professional convenience, social and professional success. They don't choose them based on what's true or false. Many people do at least. And I think that explains some of it, but I think, you know, it kind of explains a lot of it is that also like, you know, with the seed oils in the last 50 years and plastics and polyester clothing and all the shit that's poisoning people, you know, the, the high fructose corn syrup, uh, high fructose corn syrup, the junk food, sedentary lifestyle, the fluorescent lighting, the lack of sun, the demonization of sun where everyone's putting on all the suntan lotion to avoid sun. All this stuff has been around for a long time. Obviously, cigarettes were a big one. They're less now, but you know, 30, 40 years ago, everyone was smoking 50 years ago. So there's just been like so many people dying of heart disease and cancer anyway before this. So I think like most people expect to die of heart disease or cancer. Most old people will eventually get cancer or heart disease and always have, right? Like my grandparents on my mother's side both died of lung cancer from smoking you know, people just die. My dad died of heart disease. My uncle died of uh, heart disease and cancer. And so, you know, this is just, we're just used to it by now because we've been poisoned for so long. Also, I, I left out uh, pesticides. Pesticides are a huge one. We're spraying crops with all sorts of poisons. And so we're so used to be po being poisoned for so long and getting heart disease and cancer just in the normal run of things that even if this mRNA shot is accelerating the cancers and causing heart attacks in young people, which was rare. I mean, you know, usually seed oils aren't going to kill you at age 35. You know, it's going to take some time. They may make you depressed or less healthy or more anxious or less energetic, but they're not going to kill you at age 35. But maybe just the fact that we're all used to seeing our relatives and friends and families die of all these different horrible diseases that are probably many of them corporate profit, you know, product driven 
that this is not a difference in kind, it's just a difference in degree. So the fact that people are suddenly dying or having these cancers is like, oh, it's terrible. They had cancer. Fuck cancer. We need to cure cancer. We need to find the cure for cancer. It's the most ridiculous thing. It's like, oh, we need to stop terrorism. We need to end terrorism. We need to fight terrorism. Terrorism exists when conditions in a place are so bad that young people can be co-opted into doing horrendous things. Terrorism is a symptom of failed states. And who knows if intelligence agencies foment it for their own geopolitical purposes and you know, use for, you know, the Patriot Act was a huge boon to the intelligence agencies and the government power. So who knows how much of this was fomented by intelligence agencies, but it can't even be fomented by them unless bad conditions, failed states exist, and then you know, terrorism can exist. And I think cancer is just like terrorism. It's like if you have poor conditions in the body, poor diet, toxins, mRNA spike proteins that have just been sort of tested on humans for the first time in the last couple of years, these are the kind of things that can cause cancer. And the cells mutate and multiply in detrimental ways, you know, that's, that's cancer. And the conditions that cause that are always going to be some sort of toxin, some sort of radiation, some sort of poison that impels them to do that. I would think, you know, every effect has a cause and we say, oh, it's random. This person got cancer. Well, it's random that in the sense that they might not know what the cause is. So they didn't know what to do to not get it. It's random in the sense that anybody, you know, could have been in those conditions and gotten it perhaps, but it's not random in the sense that you just get cancer by rolling some dice. I mean, there's actually causes. You might've been too near some coal plant that's emitting mercury or something. You might've been too near some, something toxic. You might've had a toxic element in your diet. You may have not gotten enough sunlight or vitamin D or, or, or some element of health that you needed to fight it off. So it's never random, in my opinion. Every, every effect has a cause. You're not going to you know, defeat cancer. You may find good treatments for cancer, but you're never going to defeat cancer as a, as a force in nature. You're never going to stop cells from dividing in the wrong way. You're going to maybe make it so that the conditions where cells do that kind of thing don't arise very often because the person is in conditions much more conducive to healthy, to a healthy body than a person that would get cancer. And I think terrorism is the same way, right? If you live in a prosperous and just society, it's unlikely that you're going to become a terrorist. Even if some intelligence agency tries to recruit you, you know, you're going to have something to live for and, and you're not going to be so filled with resentment and hate that you're going to do something stupid like that. So, so I think that part of the reason why, even though these deaths are becoming increasingly hard to ignore, people are just kind of looking the other way is that they've kind of looked the other way for decades already. That There's kind of been this, oh, so sad he got cancer, but you know that the pesticides in your foods and the seed oils and the polyester and the plastic bottles and that shit wasn't good for you. And that you don't know which one it is or something else. People are like, oh, it's just genetic though. It's just genetic. No, I mean, I don't see anyone having the cancer gene as an adaptive thing. Like, oh, like I evolved to get cancer. Uh, I don't think that would be too likely. I think that what happens is people have certain genes that get switched on and off and certain toxins will switch on the gene to do something is harmful to the body, perhaps. I think people are genetically predisposed to certain kinds of cancers if they meet with the particular toxins. I don't think they're just predisposed to get cancer in a healthy environment. 
you know, if you're in a place with sun and fresh food and clean water and good air and natural products, I don't think having a cancer gene is going to be sufficient. I think you need that plus the toxic environment, which in modern society is, is so common. So that's just my belief about it. I don't think people just would get cancer from their genes alone. And anyway, I'm going a little bit far afield, but my point is just that that's sort of a side point. My, my main point is just that, that I think people are a little bit numb to all these crazy deaths and disabilities from people because we've already had it to an extent for a while now. We've sort of gotten used to it. There's that. Um, one other thing I'm, I was thinking about and I'm working on, I'll try to make this a little short because I'm going to edit tomorrow, but I was talking with somebody, got into it a little bit about the concept of addiction. And she was like, you know, oh yeah, you're just not an addictive person. So you don't understand like what addiction is. It's easy for you to not drink for a month or not, you know, do whatever. And it is easy for me. I mean, it's easy now at least, you know, she was like, well, I, I'm more addictive. So, you know, and I was like, I don't really believe in addiction. I just think like you either have a priority or you don't. And she got a little pissed, I think, because she was like, sort of like dismissive of her, you know, like she does this vaping, my friend. And you know, she was like having trouble quitting it. So she's feeling a bit like I'm not like giving her the, I don't know, giving her the out of saying, oh, but I'm an addict, so I can't stop this. And the way I look at it, you know, I could be mistaken, but this is my philosophy about it is I'll give an example. Like Heather's chronically late. She's always late, she's always late, just always leaves like about the time she should be there or five minutes before she should be there. And I always get annoyed with her and it doesn't really change. And it's just how she is. But I said to her, I said, you know, I get annoyed when you get, when you're late because I feel it's disrespectful. And she's like, well, I, you know, it's not personal. I'm just working on something and I want to get it done. And then by the time I get it done, you know, whatever her reason is, I'm like, yeah, but let's say instead of meeting me for dinner, you were meeting somebody who would give you a million dollars. But if you were a minute late, you wouldn't get the million dollars there was a 0% chance she would be late. And so it would just be like, if it were a priority of that level, she would not be late. It's, oh, she's only late to see me, for example, or anybody else, it's not just me, because it's just not that big of a priority. The priority of finishing the work or whatever she's doing is bigger. And that's kind of how I look at addiction. It's kind of like, well, just doing that heroin or smoking that cigarette is bigger than getting healthy or getting off of it for you at that time. It's just bigger. And so the woman I was talking to kind of replied and was like, well, no, this is biochemical. You don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, no, nah, it's not biochemical. It's biochemical that if you are used to smoking cigarettes and then you don't have nicotine, that you're going to feel uncomfortable and suffer. That's biochemical, right? I mean, withdrawal is real. That's a biochemical process. But the fact that you're choosing not to suffer, you're choosing to have this thing that you know you don't want to be doing anymore instead of suffering and getting over it, that's not biochemical. That's choice, right? I'm like, you know, we're not just um, a, a bag of chemicals. There's a Neil deGrasse Tyson quote that I really was disturbing to me that I talked about in my uh, uncensored tweets thing on my site. We'll get to that in a second. But, you know, there's consciousness, right? I mean, we, I mean, you believe that we're just a materialistic world entirely. We're a bunch of atoms and molecules and chemicals, and we're just you know, sort of no free will. We're just machines, basically, biological, biochemical machines. There's no point in talking or I'm only talking because the machine is making me talk and you're only listening because the machine is making you listen and there's nothing you could possibly do differently. Do you really believe that? You're just a bag of chemicals? Or is there such a thing as consciousness and, and having a choice and making choices and having agency? You know, the addict to me is, 
the one who identifies as an addict is kind of like, I don't have agency. I'm an addict. I'm an NPC. It's literally an NPC, a non-player character, right? The player characters make choices. The NPCs in the video games, right? The new parlance, the NPC, the non-player character just does whatever the algorithm has him do. He's an NPC. And if you say I'm an addict, you're like, I'm an NPC. I don't have control over this. I don't have a choice. And to me, like, I understand why someone would want to do that because what would you, what would happen if you didn't do that? If you didn't say I'm an addict, you'd say, I hate myself. I'm a horrible person. Maybe I'll kill myself. I'm self, just be self-loathing. So I think maybe to get rid of the self-loathing, they say, it's not in my control. I'm, you know, I'm not at fault. I'm an addict. And I understand why you would want to not self-loathe, but I, I think pity and judgment are two sides of the same coin. I think the I'm an addict is kind of self-pity, like, oh, I'm an NPC. I can't help it. And I'm a horrible person. I've ruined my life. That's just judgment. That's self-loathing. That's not good either. Both of those are sort of assessing the past, right? One of them is saying the past is your fault. And the other one is saying the past isn't my fault. But either way, it's two sides of the same coin. You're, you're basically trying to evaluate yourself and how you've performed in some way, letting yourself off the hook or condemning yourself. That's kind of the same thing because you're, you know what happened. So whatever you say about it, you're still sort of attaching yourself to your past behavior. But the, to me, the opposite of that isn't, you know, I'm an addict or I'm a, I'm a terrible person. I, I think those are the same thing. I think the opposite of that is saying what's done is done. And I take responsibility going forward. I can't undo the past. Past caused me a lot of pain. I regret some of it, but I can only control what's going forward. And I'm going to control what I do going forward. That would be the opposite of both addict and self-loathing, which is the same thing in my opinion. And so what would cause a person to take responsibility and to get off drugs or, you know, suffer, which is biochemical. The suffering is real, right? I mean, anyone who quits some substance is going to suffer and some substances more than others and suffer greatly. So what would cause somebody to be able to suffer? Well, I mean, we, we do it all the time, right? We, we are wired to refer pleasure to pain. It's a survival mechanism. We, we choose pleasure, avoid pain. Now that's gotten us in trouble in the modern era when you can pleasure and eat donuts all day and not exercise, which is painful. Back in the wild, pleasure pain was a pretty good guideline to survival, uh, but not anymore. So we often choose pain voluntarily, go running at the track or any kind of exercise that's painful. And we often reject pleasure. We don't eat the donut or we, you know, maybe eat something that we think is good for us that we don't like as much, uh, or we fast, you know, this is, this is common. We're able to you know, it's not just biochemical that we have to have pleasure. And since we're in or avoid pain and we're in pain because we're withdrawing from some substance that so we have to, we have no control. Um, you, you have control, but what would, what would make you choose pain over pleasure, long-term health, even if it's short-term pain over short-term pleasure and long-term ill health? Well, it would be uh, caring, right? Having a purpose, having meaning, being like, I care about my long-term health. I want to be healthy. I'm going to choose to run and not eat um, this shit food. I'm not going to eat on an airplane. I'll wait till I get there. That one's pretty easy, but there are more difficult ones. And, um, and we do it all the time. And, but just like the, the example where, you know, Heather, is it going to, she might be on time to meet me if I get annoyed enough. She thinks I'm going to get annoyed enough, but for a million dollars, there's no question she's going to be on time. And so it's just kind of like that, having a priority. Right. And I think like, what, what someone would call an act, I would call an, a nihilist, you know, or a hedonist or someone who doesn't have a basic faith that giving into this thing is, is not the right thing. I think they basically just lack 
a deep faith that if you have no faith, you, if you have no nothing to, important to live for, pleasure pain is going to be the easiest thing to go by. You're going to keep giving in. But if you have something important that you're living for, important purpose, then doing heroin seems like ridiculous. Now, of course, if you're not used to doing heroin, it doesn't, <laughs> there's no draw in it, but it's a lot stronger the pull if you've you know just been doing it for months um, and you really, really, really want it. And it's really, really, really painful not to have it. Um, it's going to be a much stronger pull. But I, I think the way someone would kick it is to have a, a good reason to, you know, a really good reason and not just, you know, the reason like, oh, well, don't you want to be healthy? Don't you know, but like a deep seated faith in the importance of life. And not everybody has that, you know, and I, I think that th that's kind of the dividing line. And And for some reason, I don't know why I've always kind of felt that way. I've always felt like I have a purpose. There's meaning in my life, even if I'm unhappy or pissed off about stuff or despairing about the way things are going, which is plenty of times. I've always feel like there's been some meaning, something akin to religion. It's not like God, like traditional religion, but just something call it God if you want that just has made it easier for me to make certain choices. And obviously as you develop certain habits, like going to the track. I just go now. It's painful, but I just go. I know I'm going to go. I know I'm going to do it, um, which is different than if I hadn't gone in a long time, which I didn't. And then it's really hard to get yourself to go. And if you have a habit of doing drugs, it's going to be harder to not do drugs than if you don't have the habit. But again, ultimately, it's just like matter of priority, in my opinion. And I think of like, you know, the the Jesus story, myth story, whatever you want to call it. I think it's historically verified. But Talk about faith, like the guy went to the cross. Talk about suffering and having faith. I mean, that's that's kind of the symbol, right? It's like, well, if he can suffer that for a purpose, then you can quit heroin or that you could suffer what you need to suffer emotionally, emotional discomfort, cognitive dissonance, physical discomfort for something important and meaningful. That's sort of the, I think that's sort of the point of that story. Um, and so I think that the... Uh, the addict is a faithless person, a nihilist, somebody who doesn't believe in anything. And the people who are able to get over it are the people that have something they actually believe in that's important. So anyway, that was just my take on that. And I think that if people identify as addicts, it's just kind of like a way of staving off self-loathing, which I don't think self-loathing is good for them either. I think it's just sort of like, okay, can't change the past. How do I, how do I act responsibly going forward? Uh, painful as the past may be. So that's that. That was one thing I was uh, looking at. And then finally, I'll probably end this pretty soon. Maybe I'll leave this for the next one. But I, I, I really need to write something about sort of this the midwit mentality. But it's not just midwits. It's this brand of thinking where you can never be wrong because if your process was good, well, I took five boosters, my process was good. If your process was good, results don't matter, right? The idea of, oh, that's results oriented. Yeah, you know, you laid two to one on a head, a coin flip and yeah, you got it right and you won, but your process sucked. You would have lost money over time. You know, it's sort of like whether or not you win, you still made the wrong choice. Now it's easy with coins. You could say that was a, a bad bet you made and you could say that definitively, assuming you know that they're fair coins. Most things, and I've mentioned this before, are not really like coins or cards or dice. They're, they're harder to figure out whether they're true or what the base rate is. But I got into it with people last year and one of the things that were like, Saquon Barkley was a terrible pick. Sam Darnold was the right pick, even if it didn't pan out because he's a quarterback and blah, blah, blah. And quarterbacks are worth more. And it was sort of like, no, 
if you bet the base rate, which is the quarterbacks are worth more, then surely you are more likely to be right if if it doesn't matter which the players were, which it obviously does, but let's just concede. Let's just pretend you're them for a second and say that generic quarterback, everyone's generic quarterback versus generic running back. It doesn't matter that Saquon Barkley was one of the best prospect running backs of all time. And Darnold was just an okay early, you know, top five quarterback prospect in college. And so, but let's just say it's quarterback versus running back top five pick. And you say quarterback's the better bet no matter what. So you should have an advantage then, right? Because you're betting the base rate that the quarterback's more likely to be the right pick. So, okay, if I say Barkley's the better pick, you say Darnold, and two years later, um, Darnold's the better pick. You're likely to win, and you're likely to say, see, I told you, and I'd say, yep, you're right. Darnold was better. Yep, that's how it went. You're the favorite. You may be a 70-30 favorite or more for you know one of them to be an impact player and the other not to be. But that doesn't mean that if in two years or one year, is obvious in one year, if Barkley was by far the better pick in reality, that you get to still win. You already had the advantage according to you, according to your base rate. You, you had the chance to tell me that you made the better pick, but in reality, it was not the better pick. You know, it's kind of like, I'll make it even simpler for you. In blackjack, if you have a hard 17 against the 10, um, you always stay, at least by the book. Let's say some guy says, come on, hit. I'm feeling a four coming. And you're like, no, 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 no. You don't hit on hard 17. And the next card is a four. And then the dealer has a 10 underneath. And you lose. And you would have won if you had hit. He made a low probability decision call. Your your decision was higher probability. But you would have, but you lost money on your decision. And if you'd done what he said, you would have won money. You actually would have gotten paid. You can't say, no, I should get paid anyway. I should get paid anyway even though I lost because I made the right decision. I should get paid because my process was good. Give me the money. No, it doesn't work like that. You don't get paid when you lose, even if you made the higher percentage decision. And you do get paid if you win, even if you made the lower percentage decision. And what that means is just by claiming, these guys claim it's good process, and blackjack, it is good process, assuming there's no card counting, assuming it's an infinite shoe, infinitely many decks in the shoe, so you couldn't count, then that would always be the right decision to stay there on, on hard 17. But the point is, even in a clear-cut situation like that, you, there's still some chance that the wrong decision is right in this case and the right decision is wrong in this case. And in that case, you get paid when you're making the wrong decision and not paid when you're making the right decision. You don't get to claim the money just because your decision was more often right. And then, in, you know, in football, they're actually, they're basically, but that's what they're saying. They're saying, no, I still get credit for being right, even though I ended up being wrong doesn't work like that. You may have the advantage. You may be more likely to get right, but you don't get hundred percent, you know, on a 70, 30 advantage. You, you lose 30% of the time. If somebody is a 55, 45 handicapper against the spread, which is great. If you can do that long-term, you can make money easily. That's your pro. And you say you love this game and you, you know, you're made thousands of bets or 55% overall. And that team gets crushed. You can't say, well, I had good process. I'm a 55% better. Or somebody else say, oh, I went with the 55% guy. So I was likely to win. That was a good pick, even though they lost 40 to nothing and they were 10-point favorites. No, it's a terrible pick. Just because normally this is what happens when you bet with this guy doesn't make the time that it's wrong right. 
I mean, I don't, these guys cannot take the L. They cannot admit being wrong because what they've done is they put the cart before the horse. The whole point of having a good process is to get good long-term results. And you might say, well, I win some, lose some in the short term. But if I want to do well in the long term, my process is more important than my results. Okay, so let's focus on process. I want to get a good process. So in their mind, they've said, I want to make the process the result. They've made a different goal. Instead of being the result, the goal, let's make the process the goal. And they think long term, that's going to be helpful. And it may actually be helpful. But what they've done is they've gotten confused all of a sudden. They pretended the process is the result. No, no, no. That's just a device you use to trick yourself to focus on what you think is the important thing. It's not the reality. It's not real life. That's just a psychological trick. So now in reality, they, they have good process or even if they have terrible process, but they think it's good and they get something wrong. They're like, oh, my process was good. I'm not wrong. This is fucking pathological. You're fucking wrong. You're wrong as shit. You're totally wrong. Barkley is a way better player than Darnold. Darnold has hurt the teams he's played for. He's been a net negative. Barkley, whenever he's been healthy, he's been a positive. So obviously Barkley was a better pick. It doesn't matter whether the quarterback is usually the better pick. It doesn't matter. You were wrong about this. You can't be right just based on what usually happens. You got to be right or wrong based on this call in this particular situation, especially with human beings playing in complex systems on teams where it's not remotely like blackjack. That's just a, it's just an analogy. That's a failed one that you've made to simplify your life and simplify your decision-making. And it doesn't matter if you get it right. It doesn't matter if a guy's 55% against the spread. That doesn't mean when he's totally wrong and he's still right because he's better than 500. No, he's wrong on the ones he misses. He's right on the ones that he hits. It doesn't matter what his percentage is. It doesn't matter if you're 70-30. If you're 70% against the spread, you're probably getting investigated for cheating or game fixing. But say you were a genius and you're 70% against the spread. When you lose, that doesn't make you right. I, I mean, these guys cannot take the L. They, they, will, they will not pay you. I, there's one guy, I don't even dignify this guy with the mention, who didn't pay me on a bet because he thought in principle he was right, even though by the terms of the bet, he was wrong. He, he couldn't take the L because he felt like his, his process was right. And I was trying to explain to him that like, you know, when you lose the bet on the terms, it's up to the other person to say, don't worry about it. You know, I got lucky or whatever. You don't have to pay that. That's possible for the person who wins, but it is absolutely not up to the person who lost to make that call and say, but my process was good. I'm not paying just pathetic. And, but this is the mindset, right? You can't be wrong because my process is good. And these are all of these midwits, all of these utilitarians, this is the way everything's run. Oh, it doesn't matter that we force a vaccine on people. It doesn't stop the spread. And it's causing all these, likely causing all these debts. Well, we know it's caused a lot of debts. When it's causing 500,000 deaths, that's the question. But it's certainly causing thousands of individual deaths and was mandated and doesn't stop the spread. And there's no benefit to people who've had COVID already. Natural immunity is better. All the shit that we, they know this now. And they're starting to act like, oh, but my process is good. My process was good, even though I've turned out to be totally wrong. I, I trusted the right people. I trusted the science. I trusted the experts. So it doesn't matter that these uh, crazy rubes were, were you know, technically right in this technical sense. My process was right. I don't care. I don't care. I'm glad I did everything I did. I'm glad I took my fourth booster, even though I already had COVID three times, even though I got COVID after my third booster. I'm still glad because my process was good. This is the mindset. And it's, it's, it's a pathology. And... We need to go back to, yes, process is important if you want to get good long-term results, but results are still results. Process is not results. That's just a little psychological trick you did where you, you substituted one concept for another to help you focus on the thing that would bear more fruit in the long-term, but you're not insured against wrong decisions just, you're, just because you're trying to develop a heuristic that gets you better long-term decisions. So 
I guess I did finish that concept. That's basically what I wanted to say. I want to write something about that too. I don't know. I'm going away to Porto for the weekend, Northern Portugal to uh, actually go for an appointment. They had an earlier appointment there than in Lisbon to get our uh, citizenship process started. We'll see. It probably takes like two years for them to process it. Everything in Portugal is an extreme bureaucratic grind. Uh, it is what it is, but we have friends up in Porto and uh, we're going to make a weekend of it. So anyway, I think that's all I got till next time.